Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Look no further because we're here to help you out. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs where you can browse job listings, post your own job listings, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, Constructive is looking for a senior interactive designer. This is a remote U.S. position. American Express is looking to fill the following roles. UX writer, senior UX designer, senior mobile product designer, and a design manager for their mobile product design team. All positions are looking for candidates in New York City, though the senior UX designer, senior mobile product designer, and design manager positions are open to remote candidates. The senior mobile product designer position is also looking for candidates in Phoenix, Arizona. Posting to our job board starts at just $99, way less than many other design job boards. And for an additional fee, you can have your listing advertised here on the podcast and reach tens of thousands of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Get started with us and expand your job search or recruiting efforts today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Now, for the past few weeks now, you've heard me talk about the 10th Collective. You're going to continue to hear me talk about the 10th Collective because I really want to get more people to sign up for it. Um, as I mentioned before, the 10th Collective is a new initiative from Revision Path and from State of Black Design. And we started this as a way to pair black designers with companies looking for black designers. Now, if you've been following any of the news over the past couple of months, I would say, you know that we are in the middle of, I guess, not a recession, but certainly a time when prices are high and companies are laying people off left and right. So if you're listening to this and you're a black designer and you're looking for your next opportunity, maybe you're at somewhere and you're looking to go somewhere else, or maybe you're someone who has just been recently affected by getting laid off. The 10th Collective is exactly what you need. It's free to join. All you have to do is fill out a short profile and you're all set. You'll only get contacted by companies when they're ready to talk to you and you can hide your profile from companies or remain completely anonymous. The 10th Collective is really meant to be a great resource for you, whether you're looking for your next opportunity or not. It's a great asset to have in your back pocket for your career. And I'll I'll let you in on something. A lot of companies' fiscal years begin in September, so they're going to be hiring in the next couple of months. So you want to be in the 10th Collective. If they're looking for you, you're looking for your next gig, this is for you. Head over to the10thcollective.com to join, or you can check out the link in the show notes. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? 
Go to Hover.com forward slash Revision Path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Barney Abramson, an award-winning multidisciplinary designer located in Las Vegas, Nevada. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Barney Abramson, and I am a graphic designer and creative manager. I currently manage a creative team for an energy company here in Las Vegas. And prior to that, I worked at International Game Technology for about 10 years. IGT is a multinational gaming company that uh, produces slot machines and other gaming technologies. That's my official work. Nowadays, everyone needs a side hustle. So I do some creative consulting work on the side. I work with organizations and entrepreneurs to solve creative problems. Anything from brand development, personal branding, digital campaigns, photo, video shoots, and speaking engagements. So that's my official work. The rest of the time, I spend it doing a lot of writing. I write about my experience as an Afro-Latino creative in corporate America. And, you know, due to my writing, I've met hundreds of young Black designers and creatives. I am now starting a mentorship program, which is kind of like my next venture. So I stay pretty busy. Yeah, I see. That's a <laughs> that's a lot. Well, I feel like I feel like nowadays you you kind of have to have two or three things. One because inflation has raised the price on everything. I, I don't know about you, but here in Atlanta, everything is like ten not ten times at least ten percent more expensive. So you kind of have to have something on the side to bring more money in because everything just costs more money. So with everything that you're like working on, like how's this year been going so far? How's the summer been going? It's been very busy. I had maybe two or three weeks during the summer where things started to slow down, both on my my day job and on my side work. And I thought, wow, look, everyone's kind of taking a break. And I thought the economy not doing so well, that it was going to be a slow from now on. But the last two weeks, everything just kind of ramped up again. My company recently went through some sort of a proxy fight and that got cleared up. So like everyone's back to business. So quite busy with work, with side work, with writing, and also with just meeting with a lot of people. I enjoy having this one-on-one talk, so I do that quite a bit, so I, I keep myself pretty busy. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about your day job work. I really want to get more into your your writing and your mentoring, because I think that's probably more uh, exciting to talk about, but we all <laughs> got to pay the bills. So yes. talk to me a little bit briefly about the work that you're doing with this energy company. Yeah, so the company that I work for, it's a natural gas company. They service over 2 million customers in California, Nevada, and Arizona. I am the kind of lead designer. They, they don't have traditional titles like art director and creative director. So my, my title is kind of funky, but I am kind of the senior lead designer in the company. And I manage a very small creative team. The majority of our creative work is typically outsourced. I would say probably 75% of our work oh. gets outsourced to a whole bunch of creative agencies that we work with. So my typical day really starts with just going to meetings. I have huddles in the morning, typically at 8, 8, 15. I meet with the marketing team, although they don't call it marketing. Again, they have weird titles here. We meet with the marketing team, kind of get all my answers for the day, any kind of projects that are a standstill, that's kind of where I get all my answers and try to move things along. And then I, I go into other meetings throughout the day. The next kind of part of my day, it's really around providing creative direction. So whether I'm providing creative direction to my video crew or my graphic designers or a particular agency that's working on a project, 
that's really like a big chunk of my day. And then really the third part of my day, really, it's, it's around me doing actual creative work. So I still do a lot of graphic design work. So my day is kind of divided into three big chunks. It doesn't all happen in that order. It's kind of mixed in. But if I had to break it down, that's kind of what a typical day for me looks like. Mm. Sounds like it's pretty busy kind of going between those different parts of what you do, like management, then you have some hands-on work as well. Yeah, making the leap from a kind of like a graphic designer, which I something that I did for many, many, many years. I've been a manager or in a kind of creative manager role the last seven or eight years. And, you know, the big, the big difference really is the amount of meetings that you have to go to. I go to meetings all of the time and it just really takes up most of your day. So it's more about relationship building and, you know, making people feel comfortable coming to you with work and then delivering that work to your team. That's kind of what I spend most of my time doing. And then I get a little bit of time to, to be creative and, and work on creative projects, but it, it's quite busy. Mm. How has it been working remotely through the pandemic? Did you run into any any challenges with that? I personally enjoy working from home. I <laughs> I thought of myself as like a I wouldn't say like a social butterfly. I think that's too much. But I was, you know, I I don't have an issue with people. Uh, I don't have an issue making friends and things of that nature. So I always saw myself as a very like social person. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And then we all came home, and I found myself very isolated at home. But I loved it. I like my setup at home. I like being close to my family. I feel like this is like a true work-life balance where I get to go to a meeting, deal with something at home, come back, do some design work, and maybe do an errand real quick. And I just really enjoyed it. Uh, Some of the challenges that I think in the very beginning really was around my setup, you know, not having the setup that I had at work at home. That was one thing, making sure that I had all the tools that I needed to do my work. But I think my work at IGT kind of trained me to work remotely because at IGT, I had a very remote team. I had six designers and a photographer, and some of them were in Reno, which is, you know, eight hours away. Others were in Moncton, Canada. Uh, Others were in Peru, London, Germany. So it was a very broad, diverse team. I only really had two designers in in Las Vegas with me. So I was used to the, the the kind of remote aspect of it. When we all came home during the pandemic, it was nothing that I found di- difficult at all. So I enjoyed it. I am now back in the office three days a week, and I miss being at home all the time. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> well, I, I'd imagine there might be some advantages for getting in the office. If anything, just kind of like a change of, of environment. But I know what you mean by like liking that setup that you have at home. Like I've been working remotely Actually, I've been working remotely since 2008. So I've been working remotely for a long time. One, because I had my own studio and I had a distributed team so I could work with people from all over. But when I got back into working at companies, all the companies I've worked for over the past five years have been very like remote first or remote friendly. Mm -hmm. I think the last time I was in an office for a job was, my goodness, maybe 2019, I think might have been the last time. Yeah, think about it. That was the last time was 2019. So it's interesting now because like I've had folks on the show who have like completely started their career now working remotely because they might have just gotten out of school or something. And so this is all they know is like this kind of remote setup. So it's interesting to see how companies are going to try to, I guess, change with this new environment and everything. 
Yeah, I, I've seen this hybrid kind of approach with my, my work now, three days in the office, two days at home. It's kind of a setup and most people are kind of in and out. And, you know, you would think it'd be destructive, but it, it really isn't. I think that the same, if not more work, gets done this way that, I, that I've noticed. Mm. What's been the, the most challenging part about the work that you're doing now? I think the difference for me from my previous job, just because I was there for so long, is that a lot of the work that I do now is work that's being done through working with agencies. I love working with agencies. They bring just a different energy. They bring a lot of ideas. They tend to think way outside the box. So I do love working with agencies. But previously, I really enjoyed having a creative team, keeping everything in-house, and really being kind of the sole owner of a project from beginning to end. I think what happens now is where I am involved in in the beginning, conceptualizing the idea and providing it to the agency through a brief, but then they kind of go on their own and do their own thing, and then they come back. And you know, I'm, I'm the in-between person providing creative guidance and kind of driving the idea the way that it needs to go, but it is a bit different. So I, I don't know if it's a challenge. It's just a, a different format that I wasn't used to doing so much work outsourced. But I do get to work with amazing, talented people, and I do learn a lot. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword of sorts. Yeah, you're kind of being that that intermediary in a way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. So um, where before I thought we had, you know, obviously working internally, you have things can be done a lot quicker. You can control the pace and the direction of things on like a daily, if not even a minute-by-minute pace, you know, typically working with an agency – there's a process you have to follow and it, it tends to be, it tends to drag along, you know, agencies love to drag you as long as they can possibly can. Yeah. So, you know how that goes. <laughs> that is so true. And I mean, it's yeah. for, I think, a number of different reasons, but I definitely, I've been on the the agency end of it and like currently with where I work at now, I'm on kind of like what your end is, like you're the, the vendor, so to speak, kind of working with them. So, I know mm-hmm. what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's kind of, you know, switch gears here a little bit. I know that you grew up in the Dominican Republic, so I'd really love to hear, like, what was that like? Like, growing up there, did you get exposed to a lot of art and design and everything as a kid? That's a great question, because I never really thought about it that way. I feel like growing up in the Dominican Republic, for me, was very traditional to all the experiences that I've heard. I think that I was always a creative person, and my dad was also creative, so he always helped me and provided all the tools that I needed to explore my creativity. But it's not something that I saw around me, right? I didn't see people around me drawing or sketching or painting, although the island is completely full with amazing artwork, architecture and painters. And, you know, you walk down the streets and you see all this, you know, paint vendors selling their amazing paintings. So in a way I did, well, I was exposed to that. But I think that my creativity, it was very internal. You know, my sister's not very creative. My brother's not very creative. I don't know anyone in my family that's very creative. So it really was a thing that maybe my dad just kind of passed down to me, maybe. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, growing up in the Dominican Republic was not the easiest. Obviously, I had a really, as a child, right, you see things differently. And I had a great childhood and I loved living there and just being outside and playing and doing all the things that that kids do back in the day, we definitely grew up very poor. And so it was a struggle for sure living there. It wasn't, I did not live in the nicest environment or have the nicest things. 
So, you know, when my dad saw an opportunity, my mom and dad saw an opportunity to bring us to the United States to provide, you know, better education, a safer environment. And I, you know, I also was a very, like, I was not a very healthy child. I had surgeries and heart issues and asthma and eye issues. So like my dad's like, I need to get this kid out of here. So I feel like coming to the United States was kind of heaven sent for me personally, but also for my family, because it really provided all the opportunities that, that, you know, we have now. Mm. So I love my experience leaving in the DR. I miss it. And I, I go back when I can, but I do see what my father saw, you know, now that I'm a dad, I see my kids and I can only imagine living in an environment that, that wasn't safe, at least where I was. I don't want to give the impression that the Dominican Republic, it's an unsafe place, but I did grow up very poor. So it was not the best environment. So I could see how my dad kind of saw our situation and wanting to, to come to the United States and, and why we ended up here. Yeah. And so you, you moved here when you were, were 10 years old. Was that a, like a really big culture shift in general? Oh God. Yeah. It completely. So I moved here and I actually moved here during the winter time. So it was like oh. end of February, April. And I remember getting out of the plane and like my breath was everywhere. And I was like, Oh my God, like I'm smoking. Like, look at this breath. <laughs> <laughs> but again, my parents, they came to the United States first, probably about a year before, you know, we all came, my brother and sister, which is very typical, at least back then, you know, parents would come kind of get situated, get a job, get an apartment, and then the kids would come later. So when we came to the United States, my parents kind of were somewhat settled. But again, it was it was a struggle, right? You know, we were poor in the DR and poor in, in the US as well. So I recall my parents working multiple jobs. My dad literally worked every job imaginable. He worked at a mill, he worked at McDonald's, he worked at a nightclub, he was a bouncer, like he did everything to kind of keep our family afloat. And my mom did as well. I think my mom worked at McDonald's for 19 years. Wow. So that part of it wasn't easy. But what was easy was that we lived in a small town called Lawrence, Massachusetts, that at the time was literally like 40% Dominican and 40% Puerto Rican. So living in Lawrence, Massachusetts and living in the Dominican Republic was essentially the same thing. Everyone spoke Spanish. Everywhere you went was a Spanish store owner or vendor. So as long as you were within like those four miles, Mm -hmm. you were kind of safe and protected and you felt like you could do or go anywhere. It wasn't until I believe college that I realized like, oh my God, like America is really different. (laughs) And I realized that there was like a quite a bit of a culture shock leaving my kind of safe environment of Lawrence. So really it wasn't until college where I realized how different the world was. and, And I struggled there as well. For, for quite a while till I was able to kind of figure things out. Well, before you, you ended up going to college, and we'll, we'll jump into that, like, mm-hmm. when did you know that design was something that you wanted to study? Because you said you kind of didn't really see yeah. it back in the Dominican Republic. Did something, did you have like an experience or something while you were in the States that kind of put you onto it? Again, my creativity was something that I, I felt like I always had in me, but never something that I thought that could be something that I could do professionally, I guess. So... Even in high school, like I remember taking art classes only because I wanted to be with my friends and things of that nature. It wasn't something that I thought I could do professionally. I actually wanted to be a, a video producer. I wanted to be in video production. And in high school and even in college, I, I studied video production because I thought that's what I wanted to do. And the reason for that is because my dad, again, 
one of his side jobs, <laughs> my dad had a, a local TV show on like the local network. And I used to go with him, you know, I used to do the camera and stage setting. And then I was doing switchboard and, you know, I did a little bit of everything. So that's what I really thought I would end up doing. And it really wasn't until college that I found my passion for graphic design. And I mean, I can get into that if you want, but it didn't happen naturally for me. It was almost like I was at like my wit's end and I said, okay, what's easy for me? And I'm like, oh, designing is easy. Mm. So then I went that direction. I mean, yeah, we can get into it, but I'll say before we get into it, like, mm-hmm. there's nothing with lean. There's nothing wrong with leaning into your strengths. Like, <laughs> if that's something I that did, you're good at, you know, why yes. not? <laughs> yeah. So I, I didn't know that, and you know, sometimes like we fight against the things that come easy to us, and also, you know, being from a an immigrant family where you feel like you have to be something great, right? You have to be a doctor or a lawyer, or something yeah. amazing, because you have like this expectation on your shoulders, right? So I think that that was my motivation to do something bigger, or at least my perception of bigger, right, I, at the time. So when I went to college, again, I, it was a, a, a big experience for me, a culture shock that I didn't expect. Literally speaking English all day long was so hard for me. I felt very isolated. I didn't know anybody. And I really didn't feel welcome. It was a obviously predominantly white school in like some tiny town. Bridgewater is like a very small town that, you know, when you're driving into Bridgewater State University, there's like cows and farms and everything. So mm-hmm. it was very secluded. It wasn't a city or anything like that. So I, I was very isolated, didn't feel like I belonged. And it wasn't, so of course my grades were affected by that. And I believe my GPA my freshman year was like 1.7. Like I was on my way out. And it wasn't till I found myself I think my second semester, I was like really given the speech, like, if you don't get your grades up, you're going to lose your financial aid. You're going to. So I knew that I had to kind of figure something out. And I joined one of those like multicultural clubs and they had a Latina club and Afro M club and Cape Verdean club. So I, I literally joined every club imaginable and I started making friendships and then I started kind of finding my own tribe. But with my grades, I didn't know how to get those my grades up. I just couldn't figure out. Uh, how I could do what I could do to get my grades to be better. So I thought, hey, you know, I could take an art class and I know I'm going to get an A. So I took painting and I took sculpture and literally took every single art course that was available to me. Mm-hmm. And by my sophomore, maybe mid sophomore year, I had an advisor basically approach me and say, hey, you know, why are you wasting your time in a communications major? Or I think I must have been doing, I, I think I was still doing video production. So she was like, why are you wasting your time in a communications major when obviously your talent and your passion is in design? And I literally did every single thing this lady told me. And I, I started working in the art studio. I started taking more graphic design courses. I changed my major to fine arts. And then eventually, obviously, everything kind of made sense. So my grades started you know, going up and, and I kind of found my passion. It didn't come easy. I was kind of hard-headed. But I was glad to have someone kind of guide me in the right direction. Well, it's good that you ended up going into that direction because, you know, like I said, leaning into your strengths, never, never a bad idea. And once you Mm -hmm. got it, that was sort of like your ticket. So tell me kind of about the about like what the program was there. You mentioned this sort of like taking all these different courses. Like, what was it like? Yeah. So I God, I, I really would jumped all over the place. I think I started my college experience as a 
communications major because I wanted to be in video production. Then I went into psychology and then sociology and then eventually into fine arts. So I have a fine arts degree. I actually ended up having a dual major in communications and fine arts because I literally had enough credits to do both. But I took a, you know the fine arts program at Bridgewater State University, an amazing school, great program. I had amazing experience uh, there. I learned basically all the basics to be a fine arts student. And then I concentrated in graphic design because I like computers and I also like to be creative. And I thought graphic design just kind of made sense to me. And I had a great experience at Bridgewater and I ended up with a, a dual major in communications and fine arts with a concentration in graphic design. Do you feel like it sort of really helped prepare you once you got out there in the working world as a designer? Oh man. So I feel like in school, I learned like theory of design and maybe, you know, obviously I learned, I took a lot of painting and sculpture classes and drawing and pencil drawing. Like I I took a bit of everything, right? So in a way I had a, a bit of knowledge of everything. So that was great. And then also the graphic design program was great, but it really wasn't till like when I, when I got my very first job, I didn't feel like I knew all the things that I needed to know. I think what helped me was that one of my jobs, what I worked at in college, one of my jobs was working for the art studio and I worked for the computer lab. And my job was to like install Photoshop and, you know, install Illustrator. And if anyone was having any technical issues, I'd be like the tech guy fixing things. Mm. And, and then I also became like a teacher's assistant. So during a graphic design class, if anyone had a technical issue with the software, I would come in and help. So I kind of self-taught myself how to use Photoshop, Illustrator, and all that. And now this is, a, what, like 20 years ago, right? So programs back then are not as robust as they are now. I did feel like a lot of the technical stuff I had to learn myself. But, you know, having a, a using my creativity in, in, in a better way was kind of really taught by teachers. I really didn't find myself learning practical stuff until I had my first job. And I realized, like, oh, my God, like, now I know what I'm doing. And my first boss was great. He really knew that I was very green and really kind of eased my way into kind of corporate America, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So I was prepared, but I felt like I, there was a lot to learn afterwards. Yeah. I'm trying to get a sense like when this might have been. I'm guessing this was probably like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it sounds like this was maybe around like the mid-2000s, maybe? So I gra- yeah, I graduated in 2002. So my first kind of real job. Yeah, okay. I was trying to trying to like sync it up because I was like, we're, we're probably right around the same age. So I'm thinking, okay. yeah, right during that early time in the internet and the web, like exactly there was, you really had to kind of learn it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there was no experts. There was no YouTube or one million videos and, and boot camps and other ways to learn. Yeah, there was um, no YouTube. There was none of that. And, I mean, we were still using we were still using exacto knives to cut things and glue them together and pasting things together. I mean, we were really encouraged to uh, sketch everything we did, which some people still do that today. But we were forced to sketch first, then bring that into the computer where now a lot of folks, you know, just start right on the computer. So you really did have to kind of teach yourself what you were doing. Yeah. That early time was a lot of just like self-discovery, especially like if you were doing stuff on the web, a lot of view source and you're mm-hmm. just sort of playing around, <laughs> kind of trying yeah. to figure it out, et cetera. So, oh, yeah. so yeah. So when did you end up sort of making the move out West? 
Oh gosh, that's a long story. But I moved to Las Vegas in 2004. So very quickly after my first kind of job uh, out of school, I went from, I ended up moving here to Las Vegas. And I, tr- I attribute that to my wife. <laughs> so this is a long story, so I guess I'll tell it. But I actually got fired from my first creative job. Oh. Um, I, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that I wasn't prepared to be like in a corporate environment. I never had the experience from anyone else working in an uh, in office environment. Uh, all the jobs that I had prior to working in an office, I worked as a landscaper and I was a painter. And I even worked at a nursing home washing dishes. Like I just didn't have the experience from my, my people in my, in my life or my parents, unfortunately. So going into a corporate environment was very different for me. And I didn't realize that for me, I, at least back then, right? I think now things are a little bit different, but I didn't re- realize that I needed to kind of what people call now code switch. <laughs> I needed to kind of be a different person at work than I was at home. And eventually that got me in trouble at work. And I ended up being fired for my first job. This is something that I was very embarrassed about my entire career. And now I find myself talking about it all the time because I simply just don't care anymore. But I did have that experience. So when I left that job, I went into, I thought, you know, what can I do to give back to my community? So I started working at a local, like a youth counselor type of program. I can't remember the name. It's called Valley Works. And it was like a like if you're unemployed where you would go get a job. So they had a youth program there and I worked with like dropouts and like high school dropouts or folks that wanted to get their GD or they wanted to get into college, I would find programs to help them. So that was the kind of job that I was doing. Obviously not something I was prepared for. It, it was a really, I, again, I, I, Lawrence, Massachusetts was a very, you know, it's a ghetto basically. So the, the problems that I was encountering were much bigger than something that I could handle. And I thought, okay, I'm going to need to find my way back to my passion. So around that same time, I met my wife. She lived here in, in Las Vegas she had a family member that worked at a gaming company who was a graphic designer. He introduced me to my boss back then, and she basically said, Barney, if you move, I'll give you a job. And I literally came back to Massachusetts, packed my car, and drove my ass back over here. And Sorry for swearing. <laughs> but I, I drove across, across state, came to, to Las Vegas, got my second creative job working for Progressive Gaming. And that's kind of my introduction to the gaming industry as well. It was great. I started working. I tried to repair some of the, the issues that I had in the beginning of my career, I guess. It was a great job. I worked there for about five years before the company eventually went out of business. But I had a great experience. And it's really where I kind of started to learn a bit about my skills and, and myself and becoming a bit more confident. Well, you know, I'm really glad that you that you're telling like this part of your story, because I think it's something that, you know, maybe designers now that might be ready to come out of you know come out of college and start their first gigs need to know about but i think it's also mm-hmm. something that is extremely unique for our generation in that our parents whether they were i would say from this country or not they have not had the same experiences when they were going out into the workforce than mm-hmm. we have because of technology like going into technology and going into this environment where so much of what is being just uncovered is happening on such a a rapid basis. Like it's one thing about having to just learn on the job what it is that you have to do, but also you sort of said like you weren't like trained for this or you weren't prepared for this. None of yep. us were. None of <laughs> us were. We were all kind of going into this 
blind trying to figure out like, especially like for us that, you know, went to the web and went to design, like, what do we do? Because we don't know. There's no blueprint to follow. Like, I remember my early career. It's funny you mentioned getting fired. I got fired from. <laughs> so I graduated in, in 2002. I walked in 03 and I was working at the Woodruff Art Center, which is like this big arts facility here, the symphony. There's a art museum and stuff like that. I was working there selling tickets, got fired on my day off. Oh my God. Um, because one of the other cashiers was stealing money and she blamed it on me and I got mm-hmm. fired, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then the, the job I worked after, every job I worked after that was like customer service because I couldn't get a job with a math degree. I was, I majored in math. I couldn't get a job with a math degree. So like I was telemarketing for the opera. I lasted mm-hmm. there a day. I like went there for an eight hour shift. They played. Boys to men, I'll make love to you on a loop for eight hours. Oh my God. And I just said, I can't, I can't do this. I went home and mailed my stuff back to them. Like y'all can have this. I'm not coming back. But <laughs> after that, I worked a customer service job at Auto Trader for roughly about a year, got fired from that. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mom being like, what are you going to do? You're doing all this like, like, cause she knew that I was into design and stuff. Like I would, I would tell her that like I went to Barnes and Noble and like copied these books and I found this cracked version of Photoshop and I started playing <laughs> around with designs, like teaching myself how to use it. Right. But it was always a hobby. And she's like, what are you going to do? Like you have a degree, but you're playing around on the computer. Like you need to find like a job, like a real job. And I mm-hmm. did like a few months after that, I got my first design gig, but I know what it's like in your early career, like trying to find your footing and like just not feeling like you're ready yet. I totally understand Absolutely. what that's like. Absolutely. I, I can relate to that 100%. Um, it, it really was like a, like the Wild West for a while. For us, it was it was tough. It sure was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, I think it's one thing to not know because of just the industry and how it's changing. But then you add race on top of that. That has a mm-hmm. whole just other layer to it. Like every place where I worked, I wasn't like the only black person, but I was one of few black people there. And mm-hmm. then it's like, you can't mess up because they looking at you crazy. And it's, it's a whole, I get it. I get it. <laughs> well, you're, you're the example, right? Like, it's like, it almost feels like they took a gamble on a black person, right? Yeah. So yeah. here you are, right? And now you have to like represent for everybody else. Uh-huh. You have to be on your best behavior. So like everything, I mean, a lot of it, it's, it's self-imposed, but a lot of it is really true. I mean, especially then, you know, you did feel like you were, they were taking a gamble on you and you had to like really do everything perfect so that, you know, you weren't embarrassing yourself and everyone else. So yeah. the pressure, the pressure was, it was a lot. I mean, obviously New England, not the most diverse place in some areas. So I definitely worked for a lot of jobs where I was the only black person in the team or the department. And at, at times I was the only black person in the entire building. So it, it was tough. Yeah. Let's talk about your work at this gaming company. Uh, that was sort of your first foray into all of this. Uh, tell me how it was. How'd it go? Yeah. So my work in gaming started at Progressive Gaming. There was a smaller a gaming company. They developed games and also manufacture slot machines. That company eventually went out of business. And the company that bought that company, Progressive Gaming, was IGT. So I didn't transition from one company to the next, but when Progressive Gaming went out of business and IGT kind of bought some of their assets, within like six months, I was now working at IGT. So the two companies kind of blend into one in my mind, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my, my start at, at IGT, 
in working for the gaming industry was very different. Obviously, it was just a whole different world. Moving to Las Vegas was different as well. So it was, I was experiencing a lot of things, but I was in my 20s. So I kind of enjoyed the, obviously, living in Vegas, I enjoyed that. But mm-hmm. I enjoyed the challenge at the time. So, you know, I was your typical junior designer. I sat in a cube pretty much doing graphic design work all day long. I reported to the um, director of marketing and a lot of my job was really creating sell sheets and things of that nature, you know, very boring stuff. But one exciting part of my job was doing trade shows. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the gaming industry, the way that they kind of sell their games and their slots and their new technologies is by kind of going to this multitude of gaming shows all over the U.S. So I got to travel and really design for like multi-million dollar sets, right? So we were doing from video design to designing walls and features for the the booth was something that I I loved doing. And I did a lot of, I was almost like a designer and event kind of planner person because I would also work a lot of these trade shows. You know, as time went by, I moved from kind of the events part of things and I went more into the branding Our company was going through like a major rebrand after 30 years of having the same logo and brand. They decided to kind of reinvent themselves. They wanted to go from like a manufacturing company into like a technology company, mostly because they they were not just making slot machines and manufacturing them. They were also developing games and, and different technologies. So this company had like three or five gaming studios that, so we had hundreds of game designers in our building. So, but I, I've always kind of worked in a marketing environment. So when games were being developed and, you know, this company was developing, I want to say, you know, 50 to 100 games a year. It was our job to then create assets to make sure that those games were going to be sold. So whether it was assets for the web, for sales, for, for social media, we would create all those assets. So that was kind of, I did that for a while. And then eventually I, I became a manager and I started managing a creative team. And like I said earlier, I had a very diverse creative team. I think actually I had the most diverse team in the entire company, something that I was very proud of having, something that I, I strive for and I was able to make it happen. I had a Japanese designer, I had a Mexican designer, two or three Filipino designers. I had designers in Peru and Germany and London and Canada. So it was a very diverse team, even in age, like some, my youngest designer was 24 And my photographer was like 55. So managing such a diverse team in age, in cultures, and also location was like a big deal for me. And I really thrived at it. It was probably the best time of my life being um, an art director uh, at IGT for that time. So yeah, I I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind of like my experience in in the gaming industry and, and working for IGT. And now you worked there for, I mean, this this time period is like almost a decade. So you really got to work and also see how the design industry kind of grew from where you started to kind of where you are right now. Like Mm -hmm. when you look back at that time, what did that time there really teach you? Gosh, I mean, what I remember the most is the evolution of of gaming, right? So some of this gaming, and I think it's like gaming for slot machines have a lot of somewhat similar to other games that we play obviously on on the on different platforms but Mm -hmm. i remember how in the beginning a lot of the games were developed with very poor graphics very low-end graphics i think you know gives or 
very small JPEGs was the only thing that they could use at the time. And I, I remember the evolution from like static graphics to like animated graphics. That just blew my mind. The first time I saw like a slot machine that stopped and then the, the character started doing something. I thought that was kind of like revolutionary. And it's funny because the gaming industry has been at the forefront of of that development of, you know, creating digital games with, you know, other companies. And it's not seen that way. But if you think about it, you know, gaming companies employ thousands, if not millions of designers, game designers, I mean. So watching that evolution of going from like static to animated to then full-blown graphics that we get now and you know, some of the animation that's created looks like real life, and it's amazing. So being part of that, seeing the, the change in the industry from, you know, using Quark Express to, you know, obviously now Creative Cloud, that was a, a big, big, huge evolution that I think a lot of us, you know, are thankful for. So they, there was quite a, a bit of things that, that changed during that time. And gosh, I don't know. I don't, I can't think of anything else at the moment. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned just that change with like slot machines and stuff. I, I feel like mobile gaming has also really changed a lot mm-hmm. over the years. Like I see some mobile games now that are pretty much graphically on par with what you would see from a console. And I think part of that Correct. is just, you know, the technology and the phone has increased greatly. I mean, I didn't get my first cell. Well, I got my first cell phone when I was in college, but it was like a, it was a Ericsson Nokia. GH68. <laughs> I had a Nokia too. I had a Nokia after that, but it was like a T9. You know, you could play Snake on it. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't something that was as advanced as like modern day smartphones are. Like it's just amazing to see how technology has increased. And as technology has increased, design has kind of gotten better. So that's been a kind of good path to follow. It sure has. I think that design now, I mean, I, I see what some of like, some of this even like first year college graduates are are doing and it's just mind blowing and it's like wow like i could never imagine having that skill back then when i graduated it just blows me away yeah yeah i'm curious like what is the design community like for you in vegas uh, to put it mildly this it's non existent i can't really say that there's a graphic community here there's an art community that has been around for a while, and there's an art district that has been growing quite significantly in the last couple of years. But when it comes to tech or design, it lacks significantly. I mean, I'm not part of any graphic design or design or even creative teams or meetups or anything like that. It, they're far and few between. And so there's not very much of that. You know, Vegas, is it's a transit city where people come, they try, they give it a shot, and they leave. So mm-hmm. folks don't stick around very long. So that, that sense of community is not really there. It's funny because I've been saying this for since I've moved here, like 17, 18 years ago. I've been saying that, and it hasn't really changed since. I feel like people here tend to be very isolated. You know, thank God for the internet and Slack and other platforms that it's kind of where I, I get to meet people and, and communicate and, and talk to other creatives, but I don't see that here. I was actually talking to someone recently about creating some sort of group because I've seen and I've met a few designers that are moving into the city and they, you know, they meet me through LinkedIn and some of my writing, they, they kind of reach out to me and and through my mentorships. And we all talk about creating something because it, it definitely it's missing. 
You should. You should. I yeah. mean, if that void is there and you're looking for it, definitely create it yourself. I mean, that's that's what I did with a vision path. There wasn't yeah. any sort of design podcast. I was talking to black designers. And so I made it and like almost 10 years later, like here we are. But but no, that's interesting because I, I when I think of Las Vegas and I think of design, I don't necessarily think of graphic design. I would mostly think of maybe... I don't know, like interior design, I guess, because there's like hotels and casinos. I mean, I just wouldn't think of Vegas as like a design city, but yet so much of Vegas is like an experiment in design, like the strip, the huge signs, the fake monuments and stuff there, like building an oasis like that in the middle of a desert is a design experiment. So I would imagine that there has to be something there but i would say like yeah if you if you haven't found that community there and you're looking for it like make it yourself make it yourself well, you, you heard it first here it might ju- that might just happen <laughs> okay but you're right there there should be a design community here there is i'm sure there is they were just all kind of spread and there's really not again not not that sense of community doesn't exist so folks tend to kind of stay on their own and, and kind of seek out other places for their outlets. So, so yeah, it definitely is needed here. You know, it's funny you say that, that you wouldn't think of Las Vegas as like a big design place because part of the reason why I moved here was because the design industry in Boston, in New England was very competitive at the time. And mm. I felt like, wow, you know, like I felt like I, you know, again, it could have just been me, but I felt at the time that I really needed to kind of sharpen my skills to compete in for jobs and things of that nature. And when I moved to Vegas, I realized like, oh my God, like I'm like the big deal here. Like someone like me, like I had so many options to work for, you know, whether it was casinos or gaming companies or other things. Like I really felt like I had choices to make and there was so many choices out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would encourage people all the time. I remember encouraging people like, man, just come out here. You'll get a job like this. You know, it'll be so easy, especially coming from somewhere else. So that was kind of part of the reason why I felt like when I came here, everything was so much easier for me because there really wasn't that competition. Yeah. I know there's a big college out there. UNLV is in Mm -hmm. Vegas. And I believe there's an AIGA chapter there. I want to say there's been one there for a minute, but have you interacted with them? I have not. You're actually the second person that brings that up to me. And I feel ashamed that I haven't been part of the AIGA, and I'm making plans to become a member and attend. I have not seeked it. I can't really tell you why. I just really haven't. It really hasn't been like in front of me for me to to engage with them. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not mentioning it as like, you should seek them out. Like, I'm not saying it in that way. But normally, like when I'm thinking of any big city in the US, like my first thought for a design community would be to think about is there an AIGA chapter there or is there like a big school there? Cause I figure a mm-hmm. big school would have an art department or a design department and maybe they've got a student chapter or something there. So I feel like that community is probably there. You might just have to really either one, seek it out in those places or just create your own or both. I mean, I think yeah. either of those options is pretty good. You know, I mean, exactly. even with, with AIGA, I mean, I was a member for several years. I did stuff at the national level. I did stuff at the local level. I always say like the chapters per city are always kind of different. They're never going to operate the same from city to city, you know, the different chapters. But I'd say if you want to like seek them out, see if it's, if it's good for you, if it's welcoming. I mean, I know that AIGA now is trying to do a lot more around building community 
now that it, it kind of seems like we're quote unquote coming out of the pandemic. Yep. So people are starting to have events and stuff again. Also now for the first time in the organization's history, there's a black man that's the executive director. So like, and I know him personally, Benny F. Johnson, he's been on the show before. So I know that he's trying to do more things to really one, bring in more diversity, but also just like help with more community in other places. So I'd recommend seeking it out. It's not a, I'm not shilling for AIGA here because I am not a <laughs> member, but I'm just saying like, it's an option, you know? No, thank you for bringing that up. Like I said, it, it's, it's, I think you're the second or third person to bring that up to me. And I actually had their page open from like a couple of days ago because I was looking at some other certificate programs. I kind of said to myself like, wow, I'm surprised that I have not joined or kind of seek them out, but I, I think I will. Yeah. I know the certificate programs, I think, are fairly new. I want to say yes. those are fairly new. They're mm-hmm. really trying to, and this is to their credit, you know, because I've known the the past few executive directors. To their credit, they really are trying to become more of an agency for the modern designer. Mm-hmm. I think when a lot yeah. of people, maybe even like 10 years or so ago, thought of AIGA, it was very much art school, art gallery, mm-hmm. white gallery wall kind of it was for a certain type of designer that that got into design a certain type of way. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that was not very diverse just in terms of race or ethnicity. And I feel like now they really are trying to encompass the modern designer because now within the past 10 years, there's UX design, there's product mm-hmm. design, there's experiential design. Now yep. even writers are considered designers in some organizational structures because you have mm-hmm. a content designer or something. So like design is is so much more than just the visual or at least the visual in a artistically representational sort of way. So exactly. And, and AIJ is old. AIJ is over a hundred years old. Like they got to yeah. get with the program. They got to get with the time. So to their credit, they really are trying to modernize, but I think even something that big, especially with as many chapters as they have, like it's slow. It's there, you know, the change slow is slow, moving. but I think those certificate programs and I know they've done like portfolio festivals and stuff. They're starting to move in the right direction to their credit. I'll give them that. I have to say the way that you articulated that makes so much sense to me because it's exactly how I felt about them. And I just didn't know that. And now that you say it that way, I think that was part of my hesitation. Like I remember going to their website years and years ago to look at contracts or ways to handle like being a freelancer and things of that nature mm-hmm. for resources. But that was like the only way that I remember using them. But you're right. I think that they are kind of reinventing themselves and I, I enjoy the the change. So yeah. I'm going to have to look them up. So outside of work, you do a lot of mentoring. Talk to me about that. So the mentoring really came about due to my writing. So earlier this year, and I think the pandemic obviously gave all of us time to kind of slow down and really rethink your, your you know, what you're doing. And I, I really had, I really had kind of like, um, epiphany, I guess you could say, but I started thinking about my experiences and a lot of the things that I never really talked about, like getting fired for my first job or being rejected by a mentor. Like these are things that I felt like maybe there are other people that are going through these experiences. So, and I remember also during the pandemic, joining a lot of Slack channels. Like I think we're part of some of the same channels where the black designers and, mm-hmm. and, and Hugh and, and Techeria and things like that. So I, I started having more and more conversation with folks. And so then the beginning of this year, I kind of decided like, hey, you know what? I'm going to start writing more and I'm going to start kind of telling a bit more about my story. And I, I didn't really have a plan. I just thought I'm just going to make a post and see what happens. 
So I did, and I started posting, and the reaction was very, I got a very big reaction, mostly from black and brown, young black and brown designers and creatives kind of reaching out to me, which encouraged me to write even more. So for the last like four or five months, I've been posting and writing almost like every single day, whether it is a Medium or LinkedIn or on all of the Slack channels that I'm part of. And that, I, like I said, I've met dozens, if not hundreds of young designers that relate to my story, have gone through the same issues that I've gone through, uh, either struggling or, you know, could use the guidance. So that's where I then open up my calendar and say, you know, I'll just open up my calendar. I get a Calendly account and I just, I, I would, everyone that I would talk to, I say, hey, if you want to book me for 30 minutes, we can have a chat. It could be about design. It could be about any any issues you're having at work. I could review your portfolio. I could check your resume. I mean, whatever you want to talk about, you you can have me for 30 minutes. And that just kind of exploded. And before I knew it, I was having several meetings a week, if not several meetings a day. My wife is a marriage and family therapist, so she actually sees clients from home. So because of the the type of work she does, it kind of became very natural to me to like meet with people and talk to them about things. And I felt, you know, the last couple, probably the last couple, the last month or so, I felt like I should make this into something real and not just kind of a casual thing that I was doing online. So I started kind of putting together this mentorship program. It's in its infancy. You know, I'm still, it's literally like I'm, as I'm talking about it, I'm thinking of what I'm, I'm going to do. But I do want to create a mentorship program. I do want to open up my story and, and myself to be able to kind of guide and give advice. Again, I don't know everything. I don't pretend to know everything. I usually start my sessions by just telling my story and using that as a vehicle to kind of talk about the things that I was able to overcome and how I was able to overcome them. And it just really resonates with the people that I talk to. And then, you know, typically there's a lot of Q&A going back and forth. And then we continue our chats online through Slack or LinkedIn or other, other channels. So that's kind of how it started. And that's where I'm at today. I, I have my website that I just started building and I'm piecing the program together. My wife is helping me with the program. So I, I hope to, you know, before the end of the year, have this mentorship program kind of fully ready to go. I really love that you're doing that, by the way. I mean, using your story as a way to mentor and kind of help out the current and the next generation of designers, like that is so inspiring. And it's really interesting to hear that it came from your writing. Like as you started writing about these different experiences that you've had, that it sort of opened up this new avenue to you. Yeah. And you know who actually encouraged me to write? I think it was, uh, I saw, I think we both know Cheryl D. Williams, Miller, sorry, she, Dr. Cheryl D. Miller, she, I saw her talk. I, I can't remember where I saw her speak, but I saw her speak once and she mm-hmm. talked about, you know, she talked about the importance of writing and documenting and telling your story. And she just really inspired me. And I've told her this many times that she just started something in me that I didn't think I had. I actually never thought I was a good writer. If If, if I'm insecure about anything, it's my writing. But I felt like if as long as I was telling it from my point of view and I was being honest and real that, you know, people could take it however they want. And, and if we want to talk about it, then let's, let's talk about it because I, at the end of the day, I want to create conversation and I want to engage and not, you know, I don't, I'm not here to put anybody down or be controversial. I just want to, again, tell my story and allow folks to learn from it. 
and engage me and, and let's talk about it. Yeah. I mean, you're the expert of your own story and of your own right. experience. So, and I love that Cheryl was, was an inspiration. I mean, when I, I remember when I had her back on the show, this was, <laughs> this was years ago. I, and it's funny about the writing because I found her, I won't say found. It wasn't like, you know, I discovered her or anything, but I found her, well, I discovered her, I should say, through a book that she wrote. She okay. had wrote a, a memoir on, um, and it was on for sale on Amazon. And that's how I ended up reaching out to her to come on the show because I had been doing research about this thesis that she wrote back in the eighties and Correct. how that got turned into this mag, into this article for print magazine. And, you know, it spurred the symposium with AIGA. And then there's just like this gap from like 1990 to whenever when I was like, okay, where did she go? And then I found this book and I reached out to her and was like, I would love to just like tell your story because I don't think anyone has and it needs to be heard. And then that's, you know, it kind of has, has taken off from there. So I always stress the importance of writing to designers. I mean, we had mm -hmm. for a few years through Revision Path, we had a design anthology of writing called Recognize. We mm -hmm. did it from 2019 to. 2021. We didn't do it for too much. The pandemic kind of killed it. I'll be completely, <laughs> I'll be completely honest there. Yeah. But, but we had a different theme every year and then people would submit like design writing towards that theme. So like the first oh, wow. year's theme was space. The second year's theme was fresh. And then the final year, the theme was reboot. And so, uh, the, like I said, the pandemic killed it. Like people, I think were just so busy thinking of just survival honestly exactly that like submitting to a writing anthology was like the last thing on their minds but we did manage to publish two volumes one was through envision and got published through their website and then the second one we published through a list apart so i always am, am stressing the importance of writing to designers because writing i think just teaches you how to one structure your thoughts but also to explain yourself and your process to other people so they can see your work as you see it. I couldn't agree more. Um, it's something that I feel like I, I finally learned it recently. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to, you know, young designers is literally the first thing that I tell them to do is like, start writing today, start expressing yourself, start telling your story, start articulating and becoming a better communicator, whether it is at work or for your personal, you need to start learning how to communicate better because it really it's the only thing that's going to take you from a designer to something else right so like maybe you like to be a graphic designer but if you want to be a manager if you want to be if you want to be a leader in in any kind of way you have to learn how to communicate better and writing is a great way to start so i'm glad that we think the same because i i say that i think almost every mentoring session that i've had i've brought this up mhm mm like start a blog, you know, mm -hmm. write case studies about your work, like anything just to like open up that other part of your brain. I think it's just super important for designers in general. Mm -hmm. You know, I see that a lot in when you see someone's portfolio and it's just like, oh, great graphics. And it's amazing. And I'm like, oh, that looks great. But it's like, but what's the backstory? What am I looking at? Why am I looking at this? Right. Another thing is like when you design something, tr practice articulating what you're creating so mm -hmm. that it can make it'll make better sense to you, but it'll also make better sense to the people watching it. So, I mean, some art is meant to be seen, but I feel like in our industry, or at least in the as a graphic designer for me, it does help a lot to be able to articulate 
whether in writing or speaking, your vision and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Like there's this really great piece that you have on Medium called like how to attract, hire and retain black creatives, a five step strategy. Like Mm. just from the title alone, I'm thinking I know so many recruiters and hiring managers that need to read this because Mm -hmm. they're always coming to revision path saying, oh, we, we're trying to find black designers. We can't find black designers. Where are they? And it's like, I should tell them, like, go read this piece by Barney Abramson <laughs> oh, about how to you. do it because you've laid out the strategy. And I think that comes from your experience too. Like the time you're working at, you know, in the gaming industry, even mm-hmm. the, the stuff that you're doing now with the energy company, like you've done this, you've built teams. So you know how to do this. Exactly. And it's funny that you say that because it's exactly where this piece came from. It was because of the amount of people that were coming to me, partially because of my writing, they were coming to me asking me the same question, like, where do we find Black designers? We're trying to build our teams. How do we find more people of color? And I I got that question over and over. And I remember one evening I was on Twitter, I made a post and, and I think it was a CEO of an agency wrote to me saying, oh my God, I would love to know more. Do you have any advice? And I'm like, advice and I never really thought about it like maybe I have to put something together so then I wrote this list right? like <laughs> well here's a here's 10 things you could do today right so I I sent them the list and then I thought okay well maybe this list needs to be like I really need to think about this let me just throw it out there so I kind of shot this list around in my slack groups I I think Cheryl was one of the folks that kind of gave me some guidance on it and then mm-hmm. I said okay well now I need to make it now it can't just be a list right because I'm not providing enough information. So now I need to like, like flush it out. And so that's kind of how it started. It started literally from folks asking me the same question. They ask you a conversation on Twitter kind of sparked the initial list. And then I felt like I needed to flush that out. And I literally spent like three months putting this together because I wanted it to be right. I did have some help with the writing because I'm not the best writer when it comes to long form like this, but I'm really happy with it. And I'm glad that that you find it useful. Right now with where you are in your life and in your career, how do you define success? Man, you have the best question. So <laughs> uh, I am glad you said that because I had always had, in the past, I've always defined success with like a money, a particular kind of a financial thing to it, right? Like I needed to make this much money, work for this company to be successful, I mean, again, this is years ago. I had this idea that by the time I'm 30, I need to make $100,000. Like, that was like my big goal. Like, I, I, I was, it was the thing that was going to make me happy. And I feel like when I was able to reach that goal and when I was able to be at like a position that to me felt I should have been happy, you know, I had a creative team. I was highly regarded in my company. I was kind of making the money that I wanted to make. But I just was not happy. I, I just I felt like, you know, the stress of getting there and the stress of me kind of like trying to climb the ladder really got to me. And I, I got to a point where like even my health started to have effects, you know, just I just was not working out for me. And I realized that I needed to find success in other things. So for me, success is I find more success and more happiness in my writing and in my mentorship than I do in like my paycheck. I love my paycheck, don't get me wrong, <laughs> and I need it, but I find more happiness doing the things that I love and when I'm giving back. So 
I think for me, success is when I find myself in a place that I'm giving back and I am helping people, helping uh, black and brown designers get out of a rut or get out of a difficult situation at work. That really is what makes me happy more than anything else. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? The next five years, I definitely see myself. Well, I always had this vision of starting my own creative agency. Again, I I do a lot of consulting work and freelance work for companies and entrepreneurs and and other ventures that I do uh, on the side. But I I do want to formalize that into something else. I, I would love to have an agency, kind of like a boutique creative agency of my own. It's something that I I've kind of started and stopped throughout my career. And I feel like I'm getting to a place where I think five years from now, if I can launch a creative agency, I think it would be a success for me. The other thing that I would love to see come to fruition is my mentorship in my mentoring program. I would love to have that up and running with seeing and talking to hundreds of designers and also bring other senior folks like yourself and others to be part of something big like that. So that, that's, that's where I see myself in five years from now. Well, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up from here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work, about your writing? Like, where can they find that online? Yeah, so the best, where I, really where I spend most of my time writing and communicating and meeting new new folks is on LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn, the last couple of years, has really kind of reinvented itself. And I've seen just an influx of people coming to the platform. Maybe I'm wrong, but I just noticed that during the last maybe year or two, just this influx of new young energy coming to the platform. So I find myself on LinkedIn quite a lot writing. I, I actually host a blog on LinkedIn, which it's identical to my my blog on, on Medium. So Medium obviously is another place that you can find me. I have my website, barneyabramson.com, where you can, again, my website is under construction, but if you want to reach out to me, send me an email. That's really the, the one-stop shop where you can find me send me a note and then see all my other social channels. Another place where I'm very active is Slack, where the black designers, that's, you know, I'm on there all the time. And Techeria is another group and Hughes, another group that I spend a lot of time in. You can definitely find me there as well. All right. Sounds good. Well, Barney Abramson, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I think, you know, one, just your story of coming to this country getting interested in design and like really finding your own way is something that I feel like a lot of our audience is going to be able to really empathize with and relate to because design is something that is for everyone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even the ways that we get into it, whether that's through, you know, formal ways like school or cultivating a hobby or something like that. I think what your story proves is that design is really something for everyone and that you were able to carve out your own path and really kind of define success for yourself and find a way to give back to the next generation, which is is really great to see. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Big, big thanks to Barney Abramson. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Barney and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. 
Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? As always, we'd love to hear from you on social media, so please do not be a stranger. Hit us up. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become, and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.